0: You're listening to the Bible for Normal People, the only God ordained podcast on the internet. I'm Pete Enns. And I'm Jared Bias. Hey, everybody, on today's episode of The Bible for Normal People, we're talking about the bizarre book of Ezekiel with Safwat Marzouk.
1: Safwat is a associate professor of Old Testament at Union Presbyterian Seminary, as well as an ordained pastor, but interesting, which is it's tied to what we talk about today, is a, a Christian, Egyptian, and a migrant to the U.S., and that added a particular flavor and perspective to the book of Ezekiel that I found fascinating and very helpful. He's written three books, including Egypt as a Monster in the Book of Ezekiel, a Commentary on Ezekiel in the Arabic Contemporary Commentary, and Intercultural Church, a Biblical Vision for an Age of Migration.
0: Yeah, we had a great conversation and can't wait for you to hear it. So, let's get into the episode.
2: One of the really interesting things about Ezekiel, where holiness To be a holy people is not separated from doing justice. And these two categories that sometimes, because of our different theological backgrounds, we kind of pivot them against each other. They are integrated in the prophetic work of Ezekiel. And sometimes, to be honest, it makes me think that to be holy as a people of God is to actually do justice.
1: Well, it's that time, folks. It's time for us to talk about microdosing.
0: and just in general, just feeling more alert and more focused, and it's quite amazing. So get 30% off your first order plus free shipping today at microdose.com, promo code NORMALPEOPLE, that's one word, it's available nationwide. That's microdose.com, promo code NORMALPEOPLE for 30% off and free shipping. microdose.com, promo code NORMALPEOPLE. Well Safwat, thank you for being on the podcast. It's great to have you here.
2: Thank you, Pete. I look forward to our conversation.
0: Let's start with this. For someone who's never read the book of Ezekiel, how would you introduce them to it? Describe what that book is about.
2: So, the book of Ezekiel is among the prophetic books in the Old Testament. And if I were to choose just one word to tell people about the book of Ezekiel, it's a bizarre book. It's a book that is full of images, visions, uh, metaphors, Symbolic actions done by the prophet to communicate a message that made people wonder what the prophet was up to or trying to do. Uh, There is a chariot and cherubim, God appearing in a magnificent vision in Babylon. God leaves the temple. The temple is being rebuilt. There is a lot of agony and suffering and pain that is also communicated in the book pretty much all over its pages It's a very complex book. Ezekiel is a person who was in exile. Uh, Maybe the closest image that we could think of, Ezekiel is like a forced migrant. Someone for political and military invasion found himself in a land that is not his land. And he was trying to figure out what is going on and what God is up to in the world, how to make sense of this crisis. It's a very complex book that is emerging out of a very painful experience that the people of God faced during the Babylonian Empire. And like all the other prophets, Ezekiel pronounces a message of judgment, where he is trying to understand what this crisis of exile, the destruction of Jerusalem, and its temple means for the people of God. But also, like other prophets, judgment is not separated from God's work of salvation. Mm. Judgment is part of the way God works salvation and transformation and change. So judgment is not the last word in Ezekiel either, where Ezekiel also proclaims a message of hope, transformation, and change and healing. One of the obviously very famous images that come from the book of Ezekiel is the revival of the dry bones. This is one of the very common and well-known passages from Ezekiel, which, to be honest, it does capture what the book of Ezekiel is about. It is capturing a sense of death, a sense of destruction, a sense of hopelessness that the people are experiencing. But at the same time, it is also capturing God's spirit that moves, the wind that brings about life in the midst of death, and a prophetic word that offers a promise that death and hopelessness are not the final word. So even though the book is really bizarre, filled with obscure images and quite often harsh language, the book also leads us to understand that ultimately what God is up to in the world is restoration and healing and change and salvation and transformation.
0: Do we know anything about Ezekiel himself?
2: Yes, so we know very well from his writing and the way he identifies himself in the book that he kind of wears two hats. He was going to be a priest operating in the temple of Jerusalem. And this actually explains the heavy priestly language that the prophet uses. He is centered around God's appearance and God's presence in the temple There is heavy language about abomination and defilement and holiness and cleanness and uncleanness. So we know that he is heavily influenced by the priestly school, the priestly traditions. But at the same time, he then he becomes a prophet. He's called by God in order to speak to the people of God in the midst of this crisis of the exile. One of the really interesting things about Ezekiel that differentiates him from uh, other prophets is that he was acting as a prophet outside of Judah. He was exiled himself. He was in Babylon. So when God calls Ezekiel into this prophetic ministry, he is outside of the land. He himself is experiencing that trauma of forced migration. He himself pretty much has lost something that he probably, you know, spent most of his life training for to become a priest. And now he finds himself in this foreign land in Babylon, called by God in order to speak to the people of God, both in Babylon and also in Jerusalem, at a time in which the people were facing an existentialist crisis, that is the exile and the destruction of Jerusalem and its temple. So he's a priest, he's a prophet, and those two elements and these two aspects of calling shaped his message and how he engaged that moment in the history of Judah.
1: Can you paint the picture a little bit of the exile? And I think most of our listeners will know about the exile, but can you maybe specifically talk more about it in terms of Jerusalem and what's happening there? Because I think you raised a good point about he's training to be a priest in Jerusalem. And then what precipitated the invasion into Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple? And what years are we talking about? And maybe just kind of paint a little bit of the geopolitical picture that Ezekiel
2: is living in. Absolutely. I I think for us to understand, I would say not only Ezekiel, but uh, a lot of the prophetic literature in the biblical traditions is to actually try to understand uh, the geopolitical circumstances that shaped the messages. This is one of the beautiful things about biblical traditions is how they actually respond and engage in diverse ways with uh, what's happening around them. They were not isolated from the Politics, the economics, the world events that uh, were shaping them. So, we're talking about a time of turmoil in the history of Judah. The Assyrian Empire, which was dominant during the eighth century and early seventh century, has been defeated by the Babylonians, modern day Iraq. And the Babylonians now pretty much inherited the ancient East and became the superpower. But at the same time, Egypt, which is the southern neighbor of Judah, was starting to kind of reclaim some of its role and impact in the ancient east to the point that Egypt tried to help Assyria against the Babylonians which in itself sets up Judah to be caught in the middle between the superpower Babylon which is on the east and then Egypt which is the southern western neighbor of Judah and that time, Uh, we're talking about 609 BCE, Ezekiel started to become a prophet around 593 BCE. This is the time when Judah and its kings, especially Zedekiah, had to make some choices whether to accept the Babylonian hegemony or to enter into political alliance with Egypt and other small nation states in the Levant against Babylon. This political situation being caught between these superpowers for Ezekiel and for Jeremiah, if we also look at Jeremiah, it also reflects a theological question. Because for these prophets, if God is sovereign and God uses this Babylonian power to bring judgment upon God's people, then entering a political alliance with Egypt or putting Judah's trust in Egypt, it meant a covenantal Rebellion against Yahweh, against the God of Israel in some ways. So these political circumstances were reflecting for the prophets some of the theological debates that were happening and taking place within Judah itself. So we're talking about a time of turmoil in which Judah needed to make some political decisions that would reflect some of its religious and also theological understandings of their place and God's place in the world. And when Zedekiah made the choice to enter into a political alliance with Egypt, Babylon responded to that with a siege, and they besieged the city of Jerusalem to the point that obviously brought about famine and disease, and this is reflected all over the place in the book of Ezekiel, who talks about famine and starvation and suffering and sword and diseases that are bringing destruction to the people. Till 587 BCE, when the Babylonians conquer Jerusalem, destroy the temple and its walls, and take control of the city. And Ezekiel is acting as a prophet during this time. He has been warning the people that this is inevitable, it's coming. And now he, in some ways, works with the people through this crisis of the exile, forced migration, or imperial destruction of their homeland and the temple. That was an orienting compass to the people of God at that time. So Ezekiel, was he deported? Ezekiel was already deported before the destruction of the city. Okay. He was deported 597 BCE with other uh, elite groups from Jerusalem.
0: Because those deportations had been happening before 587, 586. Yes. right. Yes, it absolutely. wasn't just all of a sudden. There was a, a decade or so, right, of these kinds of... Uh, The dismantling of Judah, I guess.
2: Absolutely. And we hear from Ezekiel where the elders who are already in exile come to Ezekiel seeking maybe hopeful word because the judgment for them in some ways had already happened. Uh, Maybe a change of course in history. We also read about it in Jeremiah, where Jeremiah pretty much tells those who are already in exile that they need to settle and live a normal life. So there were like lots of uh, negotiations happening and going on. Where the people who have experienced this forced migration already, even before 587 BCE, were trying to figure out the reality and uh, how to respond to this crisis.
0: Did you know Fast Growing Trees is the biggest online nursery in the U.S. with more than 10,000 different kinds of plants and over 2 million happy customers in the U.S.? They have everything you could possibly want, like fruit trees, palm trees, evergreens, houseplants, and so much more. Whatever you're interested in, they have it for you. Find the perfect fit for your climate and space. Fast Growing Trees makes it easy to order online and your plants are shipped directly to your door in one to two days. And along with that, their 30-day Alive and Thrive guarantee is amazing. They offer free plant consultation forever.
1: We got our bushes in...
0: That's an additional 15% off at FastGrowingTrees.com using the code NORMALPEOPLE at checkout. FastGrowingTrees.com, code NORMALPEOPLE. Offer is valid for a limited time. Terms and conditions may apply. A calling is a powerful thing. It's a very strong belief that there is something bigger for you. It's about who you are and where you're going in life. You may be in college, you may be halfway through a career, but you want something different. There's a place for you at
1: Union Presbyterian Seminary long after you graduate, that supports you and equips you for service and for leadership. Safwat Marzouk, who has been on the podcast here on The Bible for Normal People, is a faculty at Union Presbyterian Seminary and is slated to write one of our upcoming commentaries. It's no secret, if you're a listener of the podcast, how much Pete and I have relied on our seminary education and how much that has shaped our view of the world and all of our work here at The Bible for Normal People.
0: It's your call. Respond with Union Presbyterian Seminary. To learn more, go to upsem.edu or email admissions at upsem.edu. That's kind of
1: the historical reality of Ezekiel. And in my mind, of course, growing up in my religious tradition, I sort of I imagined Ezekiel in exile in Babylon writing these Prophecies, like writing the book of Ezekiel down. It was a very, pretty much a modern Western idea of how these books get formed. Can you talk a little bit more about how the book that we have, Ezekiel, would have been developed based on the historical figure of Ezekiel who's there prophesying during this time? What's the process by which these books get written down in such a tumultuous time? And then in some ways, it's like, oh, that's pretty wild that it gets recorded and then passed down at such a tumultuous time in history. How how does all that work?
2: This is a very interesting uh, question when it comes to Ezekiel. Because, you know, for the most part, biblical traditions would likely have emerged in some sort of an oral context and proclamation, and then over a longer period of time, they would be committed to writing and redacted and edited in order to reach the final form of the text as preserved, either in the you know Hebrew text or the Greek text or the different versions as they continue to be embraced as sacred texts by the community of faith. In Ezekiel, though, there are some strong scholarly opinions that Ezekiel was probably a writing prophet, like from the get go. Obviously, you know to proclaim a message is likely to also happen orally. But maybe the process of proclaiming orally and writing happened faster in Ezekiel. And one of the clues that we get from the book itself is when God gives Ezekiel a scroll and tells Ezekiel to eat the scroll, that the prophet is, yes, internalizing the message, but also that the prophet himself becomes the message. Hence, all of these sign acts that the prophet performs, But then it's possible that part of the writing uh, was also some sort of a courageous prophetic commitment that, look, when God is proclaiming this message, it's going to happen. And it's in some ways, here's a proof in this written scroll of the text itself. So there is, you know, strong opinions in uh, the circles of Ezekiel scholarship that Ezekiel is one of the exceptions to this or longer gaps between oral and written traditions, that it likely that Ezekiel could be a writing prophet from the get-go as well. For the book itself to be the book as we know it now, and as you can imagine, you know, biblical scholars love to uh, talk about, you know, the complex processes of the formation of the text, the opinions vary. You have scholars who talk about very minimal contribution to the prophet Ezekiel himself, to the book, to the other side, even among critical scholars who also argue that Ezekiel is responsible for the majority of his book. Where scholarship is now as well is the more uh, of a balanced perspective where Ezekiel is responsible for the majority of the book as we have it in the book of Ezekiel. But there are some interpolations or additions that have come down from the Persian period. So a little bit after Ezekiel's time himself that are reflecting some of the promises of the return, some of the politics during the Persian period and the realities of uh, the people post-exilic period after after Ezekiel himself. But the, But for the most part, most scholars uh, would attribute and ascribe the majority of the book to the prophet Ezekiel himself. One of the interesting things about the book of Ezekiel is the way it's structured. You have kind of like two major sections. Uh, One is predominantly uh, words of judgment, which you find in chapters 1 through 33, and predominantly messages of hope that one finds in Ezekiel 34 to 48. And the oracles against the nations are grouped in chapters 25 to 32, which works kind of like a bridge between the judgment of Judah, the judgment over the nations, the destruction of Jerusalem, and then in chapter 34, the prophet starts to speak words of hope and restoration and healing and transformation for the people. Even though we have these two major sections, judgment and salvation, like all other prophets, you would always find words of hope that are inserted among words of judgment And then also some glimpses of judgment still in the midst of words of salvation, which to me, in some ways, this is kind of like keeping the readers on their toes. It's not that we are done now with judgment and now we turn to salvation or we are just doomed and there is no light of hope whatsoever. There are like glimpses of how God exercises God's sovereignty, both in judgment and in salvation that work together in both parts of the book. It's
1: really interesting to think about Ezekiel being more directly responsible for the book. And something you said earlier has been rolling around in my head. I'm wondering if you can say more about that. And that is that Ezekiel seems to be trained as a priest. And I think there are prophetic books that tend to have a more priestly slant and those that don't. I wonder, can you say more? I think you mentioned a couple of things, but as readers are reading through, what impact does that have on the shape of the book to have someone who is trained in the priestly tradition? Because again, I'm just channeling this not great education that I might have gotten when I was younger of just kind of thinking, well, it kind of seems like everybody who is part of the Bible world were priests, but I think there's a specific shape that this book, takes, like, what impact does it have that Ezekiel is trained in the priesthood and then becomes a prophet in this time?
2: Certainly. I think this is, is a very important question because in some of circles, the priestly worldview uh, has a bad rap <laughs> as it's legalistic, it's uh, not important, it's not helpful, where I think we can be very much enriched by understanding some of the priestly theology, which obviously can be found in the Torah and the Pentateuch, uh, but also we see some connections, deep connections between what we see in the book of Ezekiel and what we see in the book of Leviticus and Numbers, where we see some manifestations of that priestly theology. So just to like bring the readers into the book through this priestly lens, one of the ways that we can look at the structure of the book. In a different way, other than judgment and salvation, is to look at where the divine appearance, the theophany, the divine presence, which is so crucial, the divine glory that represents the divine presence in the priestly worldview, where it appears in the book. And soon enough, like once we open the book, there is a divine appearance. There is a message about the glory of the Lord that appears to the prophet Ezekiel in this magnificent, complex vision as early as chapter one, where in Babylon, God appears to the prophet who's exiled and who has simply lost the sense of orientation, which is the representation of the whole group that was exiled. God is not appearing in the temple. God is not appearing in the normal place where the glory of the Lord ought to appear. In some ways, this is showing breaking of boundaries. It's showing divine mobility. It's showing divine freedom to appear to the people of God beyond the institution of the temple. Then once we keep reading in the book itself, then another kind of like priestly aspect that appears in the book that relates to the divine presence is God takes the prophet on a tour pretty much a journey from babylon in this some sort of trance god takes the prophet to jerusalem where god is showing the prophet in ezekiel chapters 8 through 11 god is showing the prophet the abominations that the people are committing in the temple and then god tells the prophet that the glory of the lord is about to depart and leave the temple because the temple has been defiled then god promises that god godself will be a temple for the people in exile. Which, again, this is in some ways innovative theologically. God is free. God is with the exiles. God is with those who have lost everything in this foreign land. But at the same time, it's also a message uh, that is heavily priestly, where the way the prophet speaks about God's judgment has to do with both defilement and the holy, God who is holy, cannot come in contact with a defiled uh, space such as the temple because of the idolatry of the people. And what God is about to do is that God will leave the temple. And only when God does that, the Babylonians are capable of conquering Jerusalem and the temple. And this is trying to actually answer a very important theological question during the time of Ezekiel. Is Yahweh weaker than the Babylonian gods, that Yahweh is now losing the battle to the Babylonians. And the answer that Ezekiel is offering, like other prophets, it's not that Yahweh is not sovereign, it's that the people have committed sins, like idolatry, that even forced God in some way to leave the temple, and therefore God kind of hands them over to the consequences of their decisions in some way. And then to continue this kind of priestly image about the divine presence, where now we have this gloomy image of God leaving the temple, then the way Ezekiel talks about salvation towards the end of the book, we have this magnificent, detailed vision of a new temple that is being rebuilt. And in chapter 43, the glory of the Lord that represents the divine presence that has left the temple and Jerusalem to be destroyed, is now coming back to dwell in the midst of the people, in the temple. And from under that temple runs this life-giving river that is going to transform not only Jerusalem, not only the land that touches, but even the desert, and all the trees around it will have these life-giving, healing, performing leaves that will transform not only human creation, but also the non-human creation. So this is one crucial aspect about Ezekiel's priestly theology, that he frames both judgment and salvation in terms of the divine presence and in terms of the centrality of the temple. There is another thing that I would like to mention about the, the priestly worldview and how Ezekiel kind of, as a priest prophet, frames Some of the kind of messages that sometimes we as readers, contemporary readers, pivot them against each other, that I find them to be really fascinating in Ezekiel, where sometimes we think of holiness as something that is separate from the notions of justice, the notions of taking the side of the powerless or doing what is right for the weak and doing economic and social justice around us. One of the really interesting things about Ezekiel and We see glimpses of it in uh, the book of Leviticus, where the uh, holiness, to be a holy people, is not separated from doing justice. And sometimes, to be honest, it makes me think that to be holy as a people of God is to actually do justice. And these two categories that sometimes, because of our different theological backgrounds, we kind of pivot them against each other, they are integrated in the prophetic work And prophetic witness of Ezekiel. We could look, for example, at chapter 22, where the prophet talks about how, you know, the priests failed to teach people how to differentiate between what is holy and what's profane, what is clean and what's unclean. This is heavily priestly language. But then right away, he talks about how there is bloodshed of those who are innocent. There is taking advantage of the orphan, of the widow, of the stranger. These two messages. Are not pivoted against each other in Ezekiel. But for me, it makes me think that for the people of God to be holy is for them to do justice, is for them to take the side of the oppressed, to care for those who have been impoverished by the economic and the political systems around us. <music>
1: It seems like what you're saying is Ezekiel's sort of reconciling a a theology of place with this reality of exile, with the divine presence. And, And my question is, is Ezekiel's argument, is it an innovation of saying, no, listen, we have to think about God's presence differently. It's not the case that God is only here, but is also with us in exile, or is it There's sort of this, maybe a more traditional theology that says, no, God has left the temple because of your sin and that's leaving the people vulnerable. It's more of a centralized theology of place. Or is it, again, this evolution of saying, no, listen, we have to think outside the box here. It's not just that God is in the temple and that's where God is most powerful, but God can be present with us even in exile.
2: This is a very good question, (laughs) because I think both are happening and taking place within the prophetic witness of Ezekiel. Because, I mean, like God returns to the temple. So there seems to be some sort of tension within the traditions of the book about this notion of uh, God who's mobile, God who's free, the glory of the Lord that accompanies those who have been exiled, sent away from their homeland, giving them a sense of hope and accompaniment in the midst of alienation and uh, suffering of forced migration and displacement. But in reality, God still goes back to the temple when possibly the people now are coming back because, you know, what is pronounced in chapters 34 and 36 is a return to the land. And chapter 37, the revival of the dry bones, which all signifies the return of the people uh, to the land. So God comes back to the land after it has been sanctified and after the temple is being rebuilt. So to me, I think there is a beautiful tension within the book of Ezekiel about God who's transcendent, God who cannot be controlled, God who cannot be contained, God who cannot be manipulated, but also God who wants and desires to be accessible, God who desires to be accessible in ways that are life-giving, and that's part of the priestly worldview. And I think this speaks to us, theologically speaking, and practically speaking, in a very beautiful dialect. If some people, to them, their spirituality, their theology, their encounter of God is very centralized, then this idea of freedom of God is in some ways asking of them how they have been trying to control and box God in a particular way. And if Some people, their theology and their uh, spirituality and their understanding of God is more leaning towards this free God, aside from uh, maybe even an institution such as the temple. Maybe they are being asked, in what concrete ways, as you named it, Jared, this idea of the the place, the uh, concreteness of divine encounter, the specific ways through which a particular group of faith can speak about God and indeed God. And I, I think both are quite important for us because they kind of like help us to create a more balanced, maybe a more paradoxical understanding of how a transcendent and an imminent God is revealed and spoken of in scriptures, including Ezekiel. So it asks of us, what do we think about sacred time and sacred space And that does not necessarily mean limiting God, but God is still free.
0: Earlier, you mentioned in passing the harsh language that we find in Ezekiel. Could you give an example or two of that?
2: Absolutely. There is a lot of harsh language in Ezekiel. One of them is where God, in some ways, says, I will have no pity on the people. They are handed over to famine They are handed over to uh, starvation, to the sword, to pestilence, to destruction. And in my understanding, some of that is the prophet is already capturing what is already happening, what is already uh, being experienced. And the prophet is using this extreme language, this extreme proclamation of judgment in order to possibly give voice to the destruction that the people are going through in some extent, possibly some sort of a disguised lament to the horrors that the people are experiencing. Even though it comes as God saying, I will do this to you, I will do this to you, it is in an indirect way of capturing the horrors that the people are already experiencing. Another harsh language or difficult language to read in the book of Ezekiel, and I think we need to continue to wrestle with is found in chapters 16 and 23. And in chapters 16 and 23, the prophet uses the marriage metaphor, which is already found in the book of Hosea. But Ezekiel even goes farther than that, where the judgment is more horrific that happens to the woman that represents Israel. So just for those who are not familiar with this marriage metaphor in Hosea and in Ezekiel, The prophets try to speak about the unfaithfulness of the people of Israel in their covenant with God by way of using the language of marriage. And they portray Israel or Judah as a woman who betrays her husband, which represents God in that metaphor. And what happens when this unfaithful act takes place is that the male figure in the metaphor uses violence against. The woman. And scholars who use a feminist approach for scriptures have shown how this language can perpetuate sexualized violence. And it's really important for us as readers of scripture to be aware of the historical context out of which Ezekiel comes, but to be also brave enough to also confront and expose some of the patriarchal images uh, the misogyny that appears in these texts the violence that is brought uh, upon the woman in these metaphors and these passages need to be looked at in faith community settings in ways that do like trigger warning uh, whenever they are brought or read in spaces and also as a place where the church could start to expose various sexualized violence that happens within the church and within faith communities and within our contexts. So those are two examples that I I think are really important for us to understand as we read the book of Ezekiel, that as much as we try to understand Ezekiel in his his historical context, some of those texts still perpetuate theologies or worldviews that I think to be faithful To the fuller witness of scripture, we need to dismantle some of those images, especially the sexualized violence ones, or God uses the empire. This is also another piece that we don't talk much about when it comes to the prophets. Both Ezekiel and Jeremiah and Isaiah, they speak about how God uses Assyria or Babylon in order to bring judgment over God's people. And that has been abused and misused by many people to justify violence against the colonized and imperialized communities. And I think it's really important for us to wrestle with the complexity of the prophetic text, because later on, these same prophets proclaim message of judgment over the empires, whether Assyria or Babylon as well.
1: I think that's really important. And as we wrap up our time, I'm wondering if you could speak on one more thing that you mentioned that I think ties some of these pieces together, you know, talking about justice, sexualized violence, and empire, but also going back to what we were talking about earlier, when you mentioned the paradox of this transcendent and accessible God, another paradox, perhaps a seeming paradox, is this holiness justice that seemed to be put at odds. But there is an integration, and I'm wondering, I wonder if it'd be a good, almost pastoral uh, way to leave our time here, if you could speak more to how Ezekiel does tie these together and maybe if you could set it up by talking and helping people understand more how these have been put against each other or set against each other in either or and how Ezekiel brings those together in this both and, because I, I really appreciate how you're you're bringing these pieces that seemingly don't fit together together.
2: Yes, I, I think we are like, and especially in uh, North American context, We have pivoted being holy against uh, social justice. This is the liberal camp. This is the conservative evangelical camp. And these categories seem to be in some ways foreign to how Ezekiel is uh, bringing these two together. I, I think it is crucial for us to start to wrestle with that tension that we have kind of left the notion of holiness and the notion of social justice That what God is calling us to be in the world as a faith community is to be in God's image in some ways, like God, holy in our commitment to those who have been oppressed and been marginalized. And this is exactly the context that Ezekiel emerged out of as an exiled, as a forced migrant, as someone who experienced trauma and horrors. He tried to give words to these experiences that the people went through, and it's showing that this same God who proclaimed this words of judgment is still active in the life of the people to bring healing and transformation and restoration. And I think to capture that, possibly looking at like chapter 34, for example, where the beautiful image of a shepherd is used in order to expose how human shepherds have defiled the land and the temple and God's people and their responsibilities, so those people who are in power, have in some ways committed abominations by oppressing the poor, the marginalized. They did not heal the wounded sheep. They did not care or tended for them. And then God proclaims judgment over those powerful people who have abused their power, and then God comes as a shepherd in order to heal, in order to restore, in order to proclaim a covenant of peace, a covenant of shalom. And this covenant of shalom, which is spoken of in chapter 34 and chapter 37, is where I think we can find the language to bring all these things together. Because shalom talks about wholeness, it talks about integrity, it talks about well-being, that covers all of our being as humans in relation to God, in relation to the world around us, in relation to different communities that experience power in different ways, and also even to the non-human creation. The other place where I find this integration of holiness and justice uh, happen and take place, in chapter 36 and chapter 37, the prophet articulates something that is really crucial about the need for human communities, for the people of God to have this renewed heart, to have the spirit of God to empower them to obey, to empower them to embody, to empower them to be transformed, to empower them for their will to be renewed and revived, which happens in the dry bone vision, where God brings these dead bones gives them power and new life and a new identity so that they would be able to live into this holiness, into this justice-making where they care and tend for the poor and for the powerless and for the migrant, for the orphan, for uh, the sojourner, and for those who have lost hope. If the people of God are the dry bones, they are called to speak words of hope into this broken world, into this world that is like dry bones. And uh, the words of the people in chapter 57 are magnificent, where they say, we are cut off, we are hopeless. And in all honesty, I think many of us experience that on a personal level, in a communal level, where we look around us in our world, in a world of polarization, in a place where faith communities are trying to make sense of what's going on, where we say we are hopeless, we are cut off. We, in some ways, are also articulating our need for God, God's spirit, God's prophetic word to speak something new to us, to revive us. And that revival in chapter 36, chapter 37, does not just focus on the human creation. When God restores the people to the land, the land is revived. When they are revived and given a new spirit, the land produces. The non-human creation is healed and restored. So even talking about ecology and environment within Ezekiel, as much as it is affected by human defilement, human rebellion, human injustice, it is also renewed when God renews the faith community, when they come back, the land produces and it's healed and restored. That is holiness that is speaking justice, not only to human communities, but also to the non-human creation as well.
0: Safa, thank you so much for that answer and also for just spending time with us here today talking about Ezekiel. We had a wonderful time and I know people are going to love this.
2: I did too, Uh, Pete and Jared. Thank you so much for this invitation. I really enjoyed our conversation together.
1: Well, thanks to everyone who supports the show. If you want to support what we do, there are three ways you can do it. One, if you just want to give a little money,
0: go to thebiblefornormalpeople.com front give. And if you want to support us and want a community, classes, and other great resources, go to biblefornormalpeople.com front slash join. And lastly, it always goes a long way if you just
1: wanted to rate the podcast, leave a review, and tell others about our show. In addition, you can let us know what you thought about the episode by emailing us at info at biblefornormalpeople.com.
0: You've just made it through another episode of the Bible for Normal People. Don't forget, you can also catch the latest episode of our other show, Faith for Normal People, wherever you get your podcasts. This episode was brought to you by the Bible for Normal People podcast team Brittany Prescott, Savannah Locke, Natalie Wyand, Stephen Henning, Tessa Stoltz, Haley Warren, Nick Striegel, and Jessica Shaw.